This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. All right, before we get to the main interview, we're going to take a second. We are joined today by a friend of the show and dear friend of mine, Sarah Fader. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Excited to have you on the show again. It's been a while. Been too long. It has been a while. It's been too long. It's true. Yeah. Well, since we last had you on the show and the reason you're on today, we're going to talk a little bit about something that I know you've been working very hard on and are proud of, the 10-Step Depression Relief Workbook. Yes. What yes, is that? It, it focuses on a CBT-based a CBT based model. And if you don't know what that is, it's called Cognitive Behavior Therapy. And it is a short-term therapy that helps people recover from depression and anxiety. And it was created by Dr. Aaron Beck. I can't remember where he, what university he's affiliated with, but I'm sure that Google can help provide that information. Yeah. So it's based on cognitive distortions and um, making negative thinking sort of alleviating negative thinking and reframing thoughts into positive ones. So I personally have participated in CBT. I found it to be super useful. And I was really glad that the workbook was based in that. So I co-wrote this book with a clinician, Dr. Simon Rigo, who's one of the leading specialists in cognitive behavior therapy in New York City, my native land. And Dr. Rigo is, is fantastic. He's a great professional. He knows his stuff. He taught me some things about CBT that I didn't even know, like behavior activation, which is that you change your behavior first. And as a consequence of that, your thoughts end up changing. Sure. So it, uh, an example of that would be, let's say that you don't want to get out of bed. So you, you say, I'm just going to get one foot on the floor. I'm just going to get the other foot on the floor. It's kind of like the movie, What About Bob? Like baby steps to the bathroom, baby steps to your, you know, eating oatmeal. So it's it's like small steps to do things that you need to do, but you're afraid to. Yeah. And you, you know, once you, once you do the behavior, your, your thought process is like, wow, I did that. So Simon's example, Simon Rigo, is in the book, he says, I don't want to go for a run. But all I have to do is put on my running gear and go downstairs outside of my building. And if I still don't want to go for a run, then I'm going to go back upstairs. So he says every time that he has done this, he goes for a run. Right. It it never fails. It's just about that first step. It's like when you think about Nike and the slogan for the Nike shoes, it's just do it. Right. So for me – when I, you know, when I was writing this book, I was thinking about that a lot because it's really hard to start writing in general for, for me and especially <laughs> having like ADHD, you know what I mean? I, and hey, and I, I think, do. yeah, you got it, you know, ADHD fist bump, bro. So I think <laughs> it's about, uh, taking that first step, which is the hardest step to take. It's so difficult to do that. But once you get over that and you get that step, you take the step, 
it goes from there. This is a book that does not tell you what to do. It helps you to figure out the solutions for yourself. Yeah. It, It is not something that you will be dependent on. You will learn the tools to help yourself and you will be able to tell yourself what to do. I think one of my favorite things about this book, because there are obviously 10 steps, it's right there in the title, and it does go through the steps and there's very practical tools. But I think I've seen, you know, manuals for things like this before that are very just like dry and they tr- they lean too far into the practical, you know, here's step by step thing. And w- right. what one of the things that jumped out at me on this, and you even mentioned it just a second ago, you know, going through a depressive episode while writing it is that there's a lot of of examples, very personal examples from you along with each step. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of my favorite things about it, you know, just props to you. You know, it makes it, it makes it more human. It makes it more, oh, I can see how these things are helpful, how this progression works, you know, examples that aren't complete nonsense. You know, it's not super clinical and cut and dry and things like that, but it is very personal while also being very practical. Well, thank you. And I think... One of the things when we were going through the editorial process is because it was by two people, it was important to specify whose example was whose, right? Yeah. yeah. So there's a couple of times, I don't actually, I don't know the number of times, but there's a couple of times that Simon shares his anecdotes. Yeah. And there's a couple of times, and there's many times that I share mine Yeah. as someone who has experienced depressive episodes. So you have two perspectives. You have a clinician saying these, you know, this is, you know, these are the ways in which you can practice these tools, but it's not just him. It's me too. I mean, we're both telling you, right? right? We're both saying, here's some things to do for yourself. Um, And I'm saying, these are things that have happened to me when I was depressed. And uh, yeah, so it's all, there's personal anecdotes and there's also sections in the book. Once you learn the tools to practice them and journal what your experience is. I'm also encouraging people when they get the book, whether it's an ebook or paper, and I don't really like ebooks that much, but I think that the, the thing is it's a workbook. So having an ebook version of it is kind of weird to me. And I think that, um, you don't have to write in the book itself. In fact, I would encourage you to write it on a separate piece of paper because then you can reuse the exercises, hmm. yeah. you know, or, or like photocopy the pages or whatever. I mean, or write in the book. I mean, whatever you want to do, whatever makes sense to you. What I'm encouraging people to do is I, if you're on social media and you use Twitter or Facebook to write your progress with the book and how you feel if you chapter by chapter. And you can use the hashtag 10 step depression relief workbook. It's a very long hashtag, but it, it does work. And you probably have like five characters left on Twitter for whatever you want to say. Exactly. Then you, you, you have nothing to say. After just put that a because, frowny or a smiley emoji. Yeah. Just be like, yes, period. <laughs> um, and then just say chapter one, I feel, I feel good about this or I feel whatever, however you feel. I think it's important to just say how you feel. People in, in general are responsive to CBT because of the way that it's structured, because of the way that it targets depressive thoughts. It's great for anxiety. I think that confronting your issues in any capacity is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. This book has endorsements, I guess you'd say little blurbs 
from mm-hmm. some pretty schmancy people, including, you know, frequent listeners of the show will recognize some of them. You know, you've got endorsements from Gabe Howard and Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Right on the cover, there's a foreword by uh, Dr. Judith Beck, which is pretty cool. You mentioned Aaron Beck being kind of the founder of Cognitive Work. So pretty, pretty cool endorsements there, you know. So all those people are echoing what we're saying. Go pick up this book. Go grab a copy. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold, I assume. Yes. Yes. Bookstores. Bookstores. Also, uh, Amazon is where I buy stuff, so I'm just assuming. There you go. It is, uh, this book is a number one new release on Amazon, which is pretty cool. So go pick up a copy of this book. I promise you won't regret it unless you just hate books in general. Then maybe you'll regret it, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, then, then if you hate books, then you have a larger problem. <laughs> I think that, that, that you need to go to therapy and talk about your book hatred. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the book a little bit, get to hear straight from the source about it. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the show. I know that you know you and I talk on the phone every once in a while too, even without recording, and I always enjoy that as well. Yeah, you're the best, really. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I really hope that this book helps people and and also just as as an aside, if you buy it on Amazon or wherever, please review it on uh, review it because I think that I would like to know your feedback, and it also helps people understand what they're getting into. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and have a fantastic rest of your day. You too. Hey, welcome back. I am so excited this morning to be joined by Scott Sauls. Scott is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where he lives with his wife, Patty, and two daughters. Uh, Scott was previously a lead and preaching pastor for Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's also planted churches in Kansas City and St. Louis, as well as being a frequent speaker at conferences, leadership retreats, and to university students, as well as a blogger and author of three books. Scott, how are you doing this morning? Great, Robert. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Is there anything besides kind of all that that I said there that you want to let our listeners know about you? Well, the the one uh, piece of information that's out of date is we don't live with our oldest daughter anymore. She's off in college now as a okay. sophomore. So, um, but but uh, yep, you you nailed it. Well, uh, I mentioned this in one of the emails when we were emailing back and forth, but uh, we've actually met before at Catalyst, uh, I think it was 2016, uh, mm-hmm. back in the green room. My wife, uh, Brooke, was actually your speaker host. So we met okay. back in the green room for a bit, uh, gotcha. just for a hot mm-hmm. second. And your panel yeah. that you kind of facilitated at that Catalyst was actually, I think, one of the best things I've ever seen happen at a, a Christian conference. So, Oh, uh, you're talking about the, uh, the panel on race and racial mm-hmm. reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was, that was a great group of people. Yeah. Thought it was amazing. Well, the reason we have you here today is your newest book, From Weakness to Strength, but you have written a couple books before that, Jesus Outside the Lines and Befriend. Do you want to tell us a little bit about either of those in case people are interested? Well, uh, the subtitles of each of those books uh, really you know, give a short description of what, what both of them are about. The subtitle for Jesus Outside the Lines is a way forward for those who are tired of taking sides, and it, it just looks at the the climate of, of outrage and anxiety and anger that we seem to be living in right now uh, yeah. in the current cultural moment, and um, 
seeks to, I guess, paint a, a, a more life-giving, uh, gospel-centered picture about how we can be responding to the different um, divisive issues in in broader culture. And then Befriend, is the, the subtitle to that one is Create Belonging in an Age of Judgment, Isolation, and Fear. And and that's really a, maybe a more personalized um, expression of the first book, uh, of, of moving into relationship with those that we might not be naturally drawn to, and yet uh, discovering the beauty of diversity, the beauty of things like the local church, uh, where we don't always get to pick who, who exactly who we're in community with, and yet when we find ourselves in community with people that aren't exactly like us, uh, we become enriched by that. And then, of course, from weakness to strength is a it's my latest. It's a and the subtitle there is Eight Vulnerabilities That Can Bring Out the Best in Your Leadership. Uh, and it's, it's really, I guess, uh, kind of a different kind of leadership book. It's not so much about leadership techniques uh, as much as it is the heart of the person who is leading and influencing. And that can apply to people leading organizations or leading ministries or leading households as, yeah. as mothers and fathers. It, it really doesn't apply to one specific kind of leader only. Um, but it, but it really is about safeguarding our hearts from getting derailed, uh, in our character and ultimately in our, our ability to influence people around us as a result. Yeah. What I think is awesome is the first two books that you just talked about there, Jesus Outside the Lines and Befriend, they came out in 2015 and 2016 respectively. But I would say that even now we're still maybe more so in a type of culture where we need the that kind of outlook right it seems and i know that you know going into the 2016 election and things like that we had you know a lot of the same things but i would say that it seems to just be continuing that we're more divided and more angry and more anxious about kind of the state of things uh, as a as a culture so uh, it sounds like both those books are getting more and more relevant potentially well, I yeah, uh, it is unfortunate that things continue to to escalate, and there's no real sign that people are going to stop getting outraged about politics or whatever the the hot button issue is of the day. Um, but yeah, I, I'm trying to paint a picture for for Christians, especially for the people of Jesus, to not only be the best kinds of friends to each other, but you know, as as Jesus gave us a vision for to be, be and become the best kinds of enemies. Um, you know, he said, you know, love love your enemies. It's that's essentially uh, a call to to love anyone and everyone who's different than we are. Uh, anyone and every anyone and everyone who might look down on us, we're not supposed to look down on them in return. Um, we're we're supposed to respond to insults with kindness, uh, to persecution with prayers, uh, and, and, um, and acts of love and acts of mercy. And, and so, um, yeah, uh, I guess both of the first two books are an effort to, to call the body of Christ in that direction. It's been interesting to see that, you know, to your point that things are escalating. Jesus Outside the Lines is experiencing a bit of a, a resurgence uh, in, in interest, yeah, that was the first one that was written, uh, I guess, two or three years ago, and um, you know the the publisher wants to do a, a a revised version with a couple of chapters added to the original version, and so um, you know that that points, I guess, to to a need out there for a different way of looking at at 
at differences uh, between yeah. people and, and how, you know, it, it may even be an opportunity for, for the people of Jesus to stand out in, in, um, in a beautiful and, and life-giving way uh, in a culture where we seem to be getting more and more fragmented. Yeah, I think that's such a good thought. So your newest book, From Weakness to Strength, as you mentioned, the subtitle is Eight Vulnerabilities That Can Bring Out the Best in Your Leadership. And the reason this kind of caught my eye, aside from enjoying your work and being a fan of yours, is that obviously on this show we talk a good bit about vulnerabilities and how those can often be good things if used in the right way or things like that. So you go through in this book eight different well, obviously, eight vulnerabilities that uh, can bring out the best in, in leadership. And as you mentioned, not just for pastors, but for people in ministries or in households or anything like that. So the first one, I guess we can just go through in order unless you want to... Is there a particular order that you want to discuss them in that you think makes the most sense? Or Nah, it's up to you. This is, this is your party. I'm just a guest. <laughs> so uh, you go whatever direction you want. Yeah, well, the, the first one is ambition, which sounds upon first glance, like mostly a good thing, right? So uh, how is that a vulnerability as, as you write? Well, it really depends on what we're ambitious for. There, you know, like, you, like you just alluded to, there are very healthy ambitions. I mean, you know, the Apostle Paul had an ambition to plant churches. He had an ambition you know, to, to please Christ. He had an ambition to, to use his life to draw attention to Christ and I think the uh, you know the the potential vulnerability that, that that's there uh, with with ambition is when our ambition is to draw attention to ourselves to you know seek the approval of other people um, you know especially in ways that that end up you know hurting others and and dishonoring God um, you know Jesus <clears throat> addressed this in the the Sermon on the Mount you know he said there there are people who pray and who who give, you know, to charity and, and so on for all the wrong reasons. They do it in order to be seen by men. And so what I'm dealing with, uh, with respect to the potential Achilles of ambition for those who lead is oftentimes we can use our influence to, to feed uh, a broken ego, uh, to medicate uh, an unhealthy ego uh, by trying to draw attention to ourselves. And, you know, instead of seeing our lives as a, as a resource to be used by Jesus to draw attention and glory to ourselves. Sometimes even people in ministry uh, can use Jesus in order to draw attention to themselves. And, and so um, uh, we're just going after a healthy ambition. It's not at all a, a statement against all ambition. Uh, there's certainly legitimate, bona fide, uh, godly ambitions that, that – uh, um, we can give our lives to, uh, but we just got to check our hearts to make sure that we're ultimately about the glory of Christ in whatever we do, uh, rather than making a name for ourselves. Yeah, and you make kind of two major statements in that chapter. One is that our failures and disappointments reveal the state of our souls, and the other is that our successes and achievements are poor Jesus substitutes. And you tell a, a story in that chapter about getting kind of your dream job, right, moving your whole family and feeling like you were really on the right path, and then having that not work out and having to kind of have that dream removed. So if there are folks in a similar phase, right, or season, as we, as we like to say in the Christian world, 
where they had something come up and they thought this is perfect. I, like this is for sure where I'm supposed to be going. And then it seems like that was kind of ripped away. What, what advice would you have for them on how to navigate that and evaluate that in terms of their own, you know, where they are and things like that? Yeah, I would say that um, we just have to prepare our hearts uh, in, uh, I guess, in the, the less uh, stressful and less, you know, disappointing times of life. We have to lean in to the scriptures and lean into the truth um, that reminds us that it that, that, that God has, always has a better story to write uh, in our lives than we do. And um, we may have this picture of what our best life is supposed to look like. We may have a picture of what our um, what the best dream uh, is for the, the one life that God's given us. And um, you know, we just have to constantly be reminding ourselves that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his plans are, are superior to ours. And, you know, even if that means um, making us less visible in our influence or less um, impactful or, um, you know, moving into a situation with a lower income or, or fewer people to impact. Um, you know, there, there are two women in our community here that have left very high profile television jobs uh, in order to uh, pour in to their own children and into their local communities mm -hmm. um, because that's how they felt God, you know, nudging them. And uh, they're influencing, you could say, a, a lot fewer people now, but uh, those that they are influencing, they're influencing at a much greater depth. Um, and, you know, but regardless of that, they followed what, what they believe to be the call of God on their lives during a certain season. And both of them left situations that, that maybe most people in, you know, their line of work would never dream of leaving. And, and, and yet they did it for, um, uh, uh, what they sense to be a calling of God on their lives. And so we, we've got to believe that whatever story God seems to be writing is, is the better story. So trusting and trusting in the sovereignty of God, I think is really what it boils down to. Yeah. So the second one is one that really caught my attention. Obviously they all did, but, um, isolation. Mm -hmm. How, Okay. So this chapter was interesting to me. So how is that a vulnerability and how can that become a strength? Well, isolation uh, is a vulnerability. It should be obvious why, being, by, why isolating ourselves from people and accountability uh, and, and being content to have more fans and followers than we yeah. actually have friends. Um, it should be obvious to us both theologically and experientially why that can be a train wreck. Um, you know, it's, it's not good to be alone. That's the first negative word that, that the scriptures speak, uh, hmm. is that it's not good to be alone. Uh, that applies to everybody, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. And, um, you know, I'm an introvert and it, it applies to me. I've got to have community around me. I've got to be accountable. I've got to, um, you know, have people around me who will encourage me and build me up. And I've got to see myself as having the same role in other people's lives. Uh, isolation can be turned into a strength by ceasing to be isolated, <laughs> you know, by, <laughs> by, by pursuing community and accountability, uh, and such. Um, 
not rocket yeah. science, but but sometimes our hearts resist because we there's this part of us that longs to be known, but we also um, are troubled by the idea of of really being known. So yeah, yeah. Well, I think I mean you said it there that it should be obvious, but I think so so often for those of us in ministry or really in any kind of leadership, there's this sense that we shouldn't be honest about the the things that are hurting us most or the the problems that we have you know that we feel like oh we're supposed to be leading people and so we shouldn't kind of let people into those parts and you reference it some in that chapter but so often that leads to disastrous results in terms of whether it's you know going down a path that morally we shouldn't be going down or i mean you tell a story in there about uh two pastors who took their own life that that you knew locally uh, and, and isolation, you know, for those that are well-versed in kind of the mental illness world is such a, mm. a key factor in terms of feeling alone and stigma and shame and feeling like you shouldn't share it with other people. But then having a community is such a key factor in, in pushing back against a lot of that. So I think it's a fantastic reminder for uh, anybody reading really of something that we would say, yeah, sure, that, you know, that's that's obvious. But I mean, it's always good to have somebody point it out again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at, you know, even, even King David, the man after God's own heart, um, you know, what, what, what triggered his, you know, adultery and, you know, and then snowballing into murder of one of his closest friends, what triggered that initially was isolation. It says in the, you know, in the, in the, in the story that he was, while other Kings were out at war and while his men were out fighting, he was alone uh, in his, you know, castle or whatever, taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon, and 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 that was that was the context in which you know David abused his own power and and uh, took a, a woman who wasn't his wife, and um, you know the rest was sort of tragic history. But <clears throat> uh, you know David, King David, is a cautionary tale for all of us about isolation we've got to got to stay engaged <clears throat> yeah so the third one is criticism which a lot of people i know are going to not enjoy super uh not enjoy a lot i guess uh because none of us really enjoy criticism but i think you make some some valid points uh, i especially like the phrase don't wrestle with pigs i found mm. uh to be yeah. awesome so talk a little bit about criticism for us uh, well, you know, criticism, nobody likes to be criticized, and sometimes the criticisms are unfair. Um, sometimes they're very fair, and whether they're fair or not, our, our initial impulse is to get defensive, to withdraw relationally, to strike back with some retaliatory word of our own to put the other person in their place. But um, what I what I talk about in the book, uh, you know, the don't wrestle with pigs phrase is something that I got from a guy named Kerry Newhoff, who's a, a friend up in Canada who's got a, a podcast about leadership. But he he uses that phrase, and it, it basically means, you know, it, it, it's fruitless to wrestle with, with pigs because you're both going to get dirty and the pig's going to enjoy it. Um, and, and he's basically talking about people who, no matter what you do or say, they're going to they're gonna look for an angle to come at you with a criticism. Yeah. And so I talk a little bit about it in that chapter, too, what I learned – you know, up close from from Tim Keller uh, over the course of five years. You know, Tim, like any any leader with with a high profile, 
Tim got his his share of criticism and in five years I never heard him um, say a sharp word to or about uh, any of his critics and you know one of the things that he talked about was how uh, often was how he would take even unfair criticism and look for look to see if there might even be a kernel of truth in an unfair criticism and and see it as an opportunity to repent and draw near to Christ. And and so that's kind of a, a counterculture, other otherworldly way of looking at how to deal with criticism. But uh, I really admire uh, that approach, and I'm, I'm trying to trying to um, evangelize that approach in the book while I'm you know while I I struggle to make it part of you know how I respond as well. Yeah. We talked with uh, a pastor named Mark Shelsky uh, a, a couple episodes back, and he's written a book about emotions and the way that they kind of play into things. And in his, there's a chunk in there on anger, and he talks about how anger typically points us towards um, some idol in our hearts. And he talks about, you know, when people are disrespectful towards him or something like that, that when he gets angry, it's, you know, often pointing towards an idol of, of that he has of needing to be respected or, or things like that. And I think that kind of lines up right there with what you're saying about criticism. When we default to getting defensive or, or punching back, right. Uh, it, I think Mm -hmm. reveals something about what we hold dear and what we hold important. Uh, Yeah. So. Absolutely. Uh, the fourth one is envy, mm-hmm. uh, which I would. This falls in the category of ones that I would say most of us know would be a vulnerability, right? Uh, envy is uh, rarely, if ever, spoken of highly in the scriptures or anything like that. It's not, unless it's the jealousy of God, but for as far as people go. Um, so, how do we turn envy into a strength? Um. Well, uh, you know, envy is when we mourn uh, over others rejoicing, and when we rejoice over others mourning. We we uh, we see a picture of that in King Saul when when David slays Goliath, and people of Israel sing a song, and the song goes, "Saul has slain his thousands," which by itself is a supreme compliment to Saul the king. Uh, until the next line, David has slain his tens of thousands, and then what? What otherwise would have been a compliment, all of a sudden to Saul becomes an insult because <laughs> because he's being compared, uh, right. you know, to to somebody, or at least that's the way he sees it, and he sets out to murder David. He wants to get rid of him, and I think a lot of a lot of leaders secret, secretly wish that God would take um, take their competitors out, um, you know, in, in the same way that Saul wished that that David would be taken out. Uh, I, I think that probably there are a lot of leaders that, that secretly wish that, you know, the the pastor down the road whose whose church is is you know growing faster than ours. We just wish that secretly that he would have a moral failure, or yeah. that, that he would be called to another city, or whatever, or or the uh, you know the teacher down the hallway who is more popular with the students than I am. I, I just wish that that teacher would get pregnant and, and have to, you know, have to step away from, from her job because, because there's less attention drawn to me because she's here. Um, you, you know, and, and that was the Pharisees problem with Jesus. He was, he was pulling attention away from them because of the influence of his leadership. And, and, you know, envy can go both ways when you're on top, uh, envy looks like uh, pride and superiority complex. And when you're, when you're, when you're not on top, envy looks like jealousy. Um, right. But 
you know, bottom line is um, we've got to see uh, the bigger picture of what God is doing with leadership. Uh, and that is that God is using all forms of leadership to draw attention and glory to himself. And so, for instance, as a pastor, I need to, I need to do the, the work on my heart uh, that gets me to the place where I can legitimately and earnestly pray for the flourishing of, of the church right down the street. Um, or, or as a parent, to, to celebrate when somebody else's kid um, you know, experiences a victory or gets a reward, yeah. what, gets an award or whatever. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's not, that's not our natural hardwiring. We want to be first. We want to be on top and we want glory for ourselves. And, you know, envy is, is a, is proof positive of that, but it, it all goes back to doing the good heart work with the gospel that you've already got the applause. You've already got the, the praise and the esteem and it comes from God and what Jesus has done for you. Um, yeah. so we need to learn, I guess, better to live out of that. Mm, so good. Okay, so uh, that's kind of the first four. We're halfway through, so we're getting there. And for the listener, we're obviously talking a bit about each one, but we're not you know, telling all of each one, so you should definitely pick up the book. There'll be a link to all these books in the show notes. So the fifth one is another one that kind of jumped out and caught my eye in terms of what we typically talk about, but the fifth one is insecurity. Uh, and it features a, one of my favorite quotes of all time uh, from Brennan Manning, uh, which I think is fantastic, but talk a little bit about insecurity. Well, insecurity is just, um, you know, feeling small. And, and a lot of times when we feel small, we act big uh, in order to compensate for it. There's this great scene in the movie Shrek that, that features that where Shrek and Donkey are sitting at, you know, standing on the ground, looking up at how big the tower of, of the little Lord Farquaad is and, Shrek looks over at Donkey and says he must be compensating for something. And I, I think a lot of times people get into leadership because they're insecure. And, mm. and they think that maybe, you know, if, if uh, there's a way to, for me to be the man, um, my insecurity will go, go away. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an unsuccessful goose chase. A lot of times getting in leadership just makes insecurity grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, uh, Again, like everything else, the answer to that is the gospel. The answer to that is Jesus. He's 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 given you security and protection and protection of your reputation, protection of of you as a person in the gospel. I think that's so interesting what you just mentioned there because even in the mental health field or really any of the helping professions, right? There's this idea of the wounded healer of people who get into some of these fields because they are searching for some kind of healing for themselves and they think if they can help other people that they can heal kind of their own wounds and stuff as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that overlaps with what you just said there about ministry. You know, a lot of people going into ministry looking for something for themselves, whether they know it or not, uh, which is, you know, can be filled, as you mentioned there, with not that with with reliance on Jesus and acceptance in the love of God and things like that. This quote from Brennan Manning, Brennan Manning, uh, is one of my favorites. I actually I like outlined this in my copy of the book that this comes from, uh, and so when I saw it here, I got pretty excited. And says this: It says, "When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good." I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. 
I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest, and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Love that quote, because I think that's where so many of us are, especially in terms of right now, and maybe it's just that all this cultural stuff is going on in my mind, but I was having some conversations last night with some folks who are so torn between what they see as kind of the loudest versions of Christianity that are doing things that they can't seem to comprehend and what they see as in the, the, the picture of Jesus in the Gospels and things like that. And they're torn between these two things of how, how do we rationalize this thing with this thing and, you know, feeling so torn. Uh, and, and I think that alludes to some of that there. You mentioned you, Jacob in this chapter. You, um, you talk about him and that he found what he was looking for, not despite his dark night of the soul, but because of it. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Because I know that we have folks listening who are maybe in a, a, a dark night and are wrestling with what they believe and, and looking for something. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, you know, Jacob had, you know, just looking at his story, um, tracing back to his family of origin, he was his father's second favorite son, uh, which which is a wound. Uh, you know, just to know that you don't ever measure up in the eyes of your father. Uh, uh, you know, with in comparison to your brother, uh, his father named him liar. Uh, you know, which you know it, that's that that's the meaning of Jacob's name was liar uh, or deceiver. I mean, could you imagine? Hmm. What, what kind of impact it would have on a kid growing up with, yeah. with, with a name like that. Uh, and so, but yeah, you know, the, the Jacob was, was looking for somebody to name him, to give him a, a true name. And, and he got that, uh, from, from God as he, as he, you know, had that, you know, all night wrestling match with God. And he says, I'm not going to let go until you, God bless me. And, you know, that's, that's a picture of, Jacob recognizing what we all need to recognize that we're never going to we're never going to be settled with who we are until we understand ourselves in light of who God says we are and mm -hmm. and so God gives him a new name his new name is Israel and you'll be the father of uh, 12 tribes and ultimately of many nations one of the things I love about that story is he comes away with it with a or is it a broken hip or a dislocated hip right so yeah. he walks away with that and so it's he he carries that with him the whole rest of his life, assumedly, right? He has a hip thing now. Uh, and so it's not that he even un escapes that wrestling unscathed. And I always find that an encouraging picture for the things that I'm kind of wrestling through, especially faith-wise, that uh, they might I might come out with, with a limp. I might not be the same as I was before, but that I'll have found something in it. I'll be better for right. it. Um, so... The next one is a very interesting one. It's anti-climax. Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? <laughs> uh, well, things that are anticlimactic, it's just when people when things don't work out as well as we'd hope they would. And um, that's the story of every leader. Um, there's this uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, there's this great quote from. Bertrand Russell. It's it's about envy, but it also sort of relates to the anticlimax question. Where Bertrand Russell said, "Envy consists of seeing 
things never in themselves, but only in their relations. If you desire glory, you may envy Napoleon, but Napoleon envied Caesar. Caesar envied Alexander, and Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never existed. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're always thinking, if, if my life and if my leadership could just be like this person who's, you know, ahead of me, we forget the fact that that person is, you know, most likely wishing for more and dreaming for more than what they have and so on. Um, we're never fully satisfied because our our souls are built for something bigger than than our accomplishments. And, yeah. and, you know, our souls are built for God. And, you know, like Augustine prayed, you've made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. And what Augustine, you know, is saying there is that um, our own small dreams and ambitions will always disappoint us. Um, you know, that's the irony that, that, that the dreams that disappoint us the most are, you know, because they don't get fulfilled in the ways that we hoped. Our kids don't turn out the way we'd hoped our kids would turn out. Our, you know, our business ends up being mediocre. Uh, you know, we make B's instead of A's, whatever we're talking about. These dreams that disappoint us are the smallest dreams. And, and it's the biggest dream that will never disappoint. And, and that's the dream of, you know, accomplished by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, you know, leaders aren't exempt from that. And, you know, if, if, we wanna, if we want the assurance that our best days are always ahead of us, if we want the assurance that, um, uh, of, of, of future momentum and, and success and satisfaction, it's only going to come from, from the gospel story uh, and the new heaven and the new earth and all those things that are promised in Christ. So what do, if, if I'm someone listening who has experienced some kind of big disappointment, right, some anticlimax in ministry or in my personal life or emotionally or relationally, do you have some insight in how to deal with that? Because those are going to be painful, right? It's not that once we've accepted Jesus that those aren't going to hurt anymore, right? But how do we... Right. How do we break through some of that initial sting, right? Where it feels like, Hey, we've, we've failed, right. Uh, mm. in, in whatever it is. Do you have any, any practical words there of how to, how to wrestle through that? Yeah. I mean, we, we can't, uh, we can't avoid the initial sting. It's what we, it's, it's how we end up processing that initial sting that determines our overall, the overall health or lack of health in our perspective. But Again, and, and I, I, I talk about this in the chapter, um, the one and only cure for anticlimactic disappointment is a vision uh, of the future that God has, has promised and, and the future that God has sealed. Uh, everything's going to not work out eventually. If, 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 our, if our hearts are anchored in this, you know, present fallen world that we live in, uh, if we're trying to turn the present world that we live in into heaven, um, we're going to always be disappointed. I mean, the mortality rate is still one person for every one person. You know, we're all going to die. Our, our star is going to fall. You know, our, our heat is going to grow cold. Our light is going to grow dim and eventually um, you know, be turned off. And, 
um, the answer to all this is the new heaven and the new earth. And, and, um, and so, you know, just having an eternal perspective is, is really essential. And I, you know, assuming that a lot of your listeners are younger, you know, younger adults, I would say, you know, Ecclesiastes offers the best wisdom. Remember your creator in the days that you're young, you know, start cultivating a robust vision, uh, of God's future, uh, to inform the way that you live your life and the way that you see the world and your role in it today. And uh, no better book that I can think of to help cultivate that gospel imagination than, than M.T. Wright's uh, Surprised by Hope. Um, mm. highly, rec- highly recommend that one to your, your leaders. The more we can frame our perspective on everything in light of the world that's to come, um, the more content we're going to be when things don't quite work out the way that we'd hoped or dreamed or planned. Yeah. You, it's funny you mentioned N.T. Wright. I jotted a list down because one of my favorite things about this chapter is the wide variety of sources that you draw from. So in, mm-hmm. in this chapter on anticlimax, you quote the following people, N.T. Wright, as you mentioned, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the Book of Acts, C.S. Lewis, Nine Inch Nails, Shakespeare, and Business Insider. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So quite yeah. a variety of, of sources there, which I always enjoy seeing uh, yeah. in, in things. Uh, all right, so we can get these last two in here before we have to go. The next one is opposition. And this one, I actually, again, it seems very, and I guess they all do, but again, it seems very relevant to the times that we're living in, right? I mean, even at the beginning of this chapter, you talk about some of the political climate that we're in on both sides and uh, it seems like w- maybe one side of people are feeling like the the cultural climate is shifting against you know traditional Christian values, and the other side feels more like that the people who are claiming traditional Christian values aren't expressing them very well, or you know. So it seems like there's opposition enough to go around on all sides. Yeah, I mean, op- we live in a climate like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast where. Everybody's looking for something to be offended by, and so if we go out on social media or stand behind a podium or a microphone or you know wh- what have you, teach a classroom, uh, somebody's going to oppose our point of view. And um, you know the, the chapter you know just re- tries to reflect on the way that Christ you know, led his followers to, to be good enemies, not just good friends, but good enemies. And, and, um, you know, to bless those who persecute you, to, to pray for those who hurl insults at you, uh, you know, which just sounds so great when you're reading it. Uh, but when you're, when you're put in a position where you're feeling the tension of, you know, of, of knowing that's what obedience looks like. Um, you know, of course, when you're, when people are hostile towards you, you got to, you've got to put protections around yourself. You don't want to jump right into a situation where you're going to get slapped. Um, you know, you got to have boundaries and things like that. But um, this is really about the posture that we hold toward those who uh, want to harm us or want to um, squash our viewpoint or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, so that's what that one's about. Yeah. You even mention it in, in this chapter here that the 
the most repeated command in the Bible is do not fear, which I always, I mean, I love that. I have do not fear as uh, a tattoo. But how do, how do we, when we look at a lot of what's happening in our culture or politically or even in the institutions that we love, and we see some things that are going on that we think, hey, this whole thing's gone off the rails. It's so easy to react in fear or anger or things like that, right? I, I even sent out a, a, a tweet recently about what percentage of, of the news that we watch is based in fear because that's what sells. That's what gets people to watch, right? So how do we react to that? Because like you mentioned, you know, do not fear sounds really good when you're reading it, but then, you know, you close your Bible and you stand up and you look around and you think, I don't, I don't know what's happening here. How do we, how is that realistic, I guess, for us to live out? Well, the reason why God tells us everywhere, do not fear, is because he's with us. That's his answer. Do not fear, for I am with you. Uh, he's with us and he's for us. And, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, our, our own hearts being wired or rewired to to process uh, things like opposition in light of who we are in Christ. Um, that, you know, I'm convinced, Paul says, that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. And he goes on to say, you know, in the, in, in the climate of, of persecution, we are more than conquerors uh, through him who loves us. And, you know, he says things from, from prison like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned the secret of contentment here in jail. Um, and, you know, it's all about the, the mind and the heart that's, that's set on the things of the Spirit uh, and the truth of God, which is, as the Bible itself says, life and peace. Hmm, that's good. So the last one here, I guess chapter 8, is suffering leading with a limp, which I I mentioned some about Jacob earlier having, you know, kind of a, a limp and things. Uh, so tell us a bit about this. I know that we're getting close to time. So can you give us a brief insight into, into this chapter? There's even a, a chunk about wounds that can make us healers, right? So this idea of using our wounds to help other people. Yeah, I, you know, I, what does uh, Anne Lamott say? It's okay to realize that you're you're very damaged because all the best people are um you know any of us if we're hurting if we're going through something the vast majority of us are going to look for others who've been there and 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 come through it uh and you know you look at things like addiction recovery and you know how each you know new new person in uh in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, will be assigned a sponsor, and the sponsor is somebody who's been sober for a little, <laughs> little bit longer and can walk them through the dark valley that they're going through now. Yeah. Uh, the, sa the same for people who experience an unwanted divorce or who lose a child or, or who get, you know, cancer or something. Uh, we're always looking. I mean, that's why support groups are such a, such a big thing. Um, because we all benefit from the wisdom and experience of those who've gone before us and found a way yeah. through it. And, and so that's, that chapter is, is just about how suffering can be uh, a resource or an instrument in, in the hand of God to bring encouragement to others. And yeah. I mentioned a few, a few examples in there, uh, some, some better known examples like 
Stephen Curtis and Mary Beth Chapman, uh, who lost lost their daughter, and um, uh, Rick and Kay Warren, who mm-hmm. lost their son to suicide in his twenties, I think it was, and yeah, and and several others. Um, uh, tell the story of Ben Ellis, who was a local uh, teacher here in Nashville, who died from cancer, and you know his story went you know, went viral uh, on the internet and, and, you know, just led to the encouragement of so many people that he could die with such contentment and peace, um, because of, because he had Christ in his life. Yeah. We even had Kay Warren on, on the show a couple of weeks back and mm-hmm. to see the way that they're using what is obviously a, a tragic, uh, event in their lives, but to see the way that they've used that and allowed God to redeem that, uh, yeah. was, was powerful. So, Hey, if you want to grab this book, it is again called From Weakness to Strength, Eight Vulnerabilities That Can Bring Out the Best in Your Leadership. There'll be links to that in the show notes. If you want to connect with Scott, you can find him at scottsalls.com or on social media at scottsalls. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at robertvore. Scott, do you have any closing words for our listeners today? Uh, I don't think so. I just appreciate uh, appreciate you having me on, Robert. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Well, go grab this book. It is a great resource whether you consider yourself a, a leader in your kind of area or not. It is a, a phenomenal resource that anybody would benefit from. Uh, again, the link will be in the show notes. Scott, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.